Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. And this is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides on the quest to RPG adventures. Here's a message from friends of the show. In a world headed for disaster, five strangers with mysterious pasts are thrown together by the winds of fate to try to stop the unseen forces that threaten to destroy their world. Join Creval, a dragonborn with no memory and no past, who is the first of the barbarians of the mountains to be seen in a thousand years. Cotter, a penniless paladin, running from something or someone in his past. No one, the only tiefling monk the kingdom has ever seen, who has been expelled from his monastery for reasons he has not revealed. Adri, his monastic companion who hides some deep dark secret she cannot reveal. And Arlen, once a simple farmer, until some mysterious event manifested sorcerous powers in him. They must travel the length and breadth of the kingdom of Faroe, searching for the disparate clues that will help them unravel the mystery of the failing of their land, while trying to hold together the unraveling threads of society's weave threatening to come apart at any moment. They will have to battle nature, plague, politics, and even the forces of the underworld as they attempt to discover and defeat whoever, or whatever, is attempting to poison their world and throw it into chaos. Relic of the Past is a novel-length story told via a clean, custom, 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons game. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are found, and at poolmedia.podbean.com. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode. So we've got another awesome interview coming for you tonight. I have really been looking forward to this one in particular for quite a while since, since we were doing the self-promo Saturday run in preparation for our Kickstarter. Mr. Myers, Mr. Miller, welcome. Good evening. Nice to see you all and hope things are well for you. Greetings from North Carolina. Things are going well. Excited for many tabletop things to come. All right. Without any further ado, then, let's go ahead and introduce tonight's guest on the show. So tonight, we've got Colby Whitaker here, known as Twitter on DM Hageologist, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Colby. I was going to ask how to pronounce it myself, yeah. to be honest. That was one of my questions. I usually go with hagiologists. Hagiologists. Okay. Hagiologists. Right. okay. Well, there we go. Specializing hags. Colby Whitaker, welcome Hagi. to Tabletop Journeys. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. How are you doing? Uh, thank you all for having me. Absolutely. I'm doing pretty good. Glad to be here. Absolutely. We're glad to have you. Before we dive into bringing you with questions mercilessly, for those of for those of our listeners who somehow don't know who you are, haven't been following <laughs> your stuff, give us the rundown. Who are you and what do you do? Yeah, I'm Colby and oh feel like I'm on one of those promo threads. <laughs> I write tabletop role-playing game guides, reviews, and original content. I've been leaning really hard on the original content side and pouring out a ridiculous number of subclasses this last year. 
That is an understatement, yes. <laughs> so, I think it was, what, 15 subclasses I think you sent over to us to review or something like that? That was, sounds uh, about right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Wait a minute, from, wait a minute yeah. Josh. I, got, I have to interrupt, and I greatly apologize. This is my reaction and action <laughs> for this round of questions. Did I understand? Okay. Yeah, okay. my reaction to action. Create craziness. This is Lee Wanika craziness. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, excellent. I have to interrupt because I have to get my head around this. You wrote all of those yourself within the last year alone. Yeah. That, let's see. I was pulling up the release date. Dropped the Way of Falling Stars Monk in April, which is the first one. So they've all been since April. Oh, no. Sorry. That's the update. Since April 5th. So, so you've been doing like two a month for the last year, pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I just took the hat off of my Mr. Potato Head Yankee guy so I can take my hat off to you, sir, because that's impressive. So very impressive. Nobody can see this on camera, but I literally have a Mr. Potato Head hat that I just put on my head that I am taking off for you. Colby, that's amazing. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. And they're all fantastic, too. And we're going to dive into those in a fair amount of detail here. Let's get our initiative rolled up here so we can see who gets to dive in first. That's an 11 for me. I'm on a three. Uh -huh. I'm using digital dice today because mm. I'm traveling. 11. 11. All right, Glenn, roll again. Natural one. All right, Glenn, you've got it. 11. Told you. All right. Yep. Because <laughs> I rolled right, it again. Glenn. Wait, I have to go first? You get to go first. Absolutely. I rolled a, yeah, I rolled a natural one on my reroll. So that's yeah. all right. All right. All right. I can do that. I can do yeah. this. A lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. <laughs> so one of my questions that I had down here that I wasn't sure exactly when I was going to work in, but since I get to go first, it's perfect because as a content creator that just went through creating a bunch of subclasses and I'm still going through revising and play testing and trying to get them all hammered down and patent neat and ready to go. I wound up, I realized when we decided we were doing subclasses, a little bit of preamble, that it came about a couple of different ways. You know, there was one that I'd been playing with for a while in my own world. That one was easy, conceptually difficult to get on paper because I've had versions of it running around on different things everywhere for a while, right? But then when trying to sit down and write subclasses, trying to figure out, okay, so... We're trying to do one for every class. Which one do I have an inspiration for? And that happened some. Inspiration strikes. And then some of them were like, okay, I need a druid. <laughs> right. What's the druid going to be? <laughs> so overall, especially since you've been so inspired, what is your process? When you're sitting down to write a subclass, how do you go about it? Where do you start? What's your angle? I've come at different ones in different ways. Some of them were born out of not just being the lifetime DM, but also often being the person who was bringing new players in, getting them started. Sometimes that meant helping them to make exactly the kind of character they wanted. And a couple of subclasses started with one that's coming out later this year, the School of Consumption Wizard. I had a, a kid in one of my groups who had been watching Reincarnated as a Slime and uh, wanted a, something that could gain powers by eating monsters. And I was like, that sounds like it's going to be almost impossible with any of the existing stuff. So I went away to my homebrew mad scientist lab and came back out with a subclass for him. Some of them are mechanical things. I got <laughs> irritated that all the monks are decks and wisdom. 
that spread all over the place. I came out of Pathfinder 1E before 5E. And uh, there's always archetypes that would let you mix around your primary stats. You could play almost any class with any stat. And I was like, I want to see an intelligence monk. That was always something I really wanted. And then sometimes it's just, this sounds like a cool idea. Vampire rogue. Why has there not been a vampire rogue? Let's make a vampire rogue. That's fabulous. I love the idea of a vampire rogue. Is it more like Blade? Although I guess Blade really wasn't a rogue, but like, how would you categorize the vampire rogue? Vampire rogues in the sort of horror series. And I tried to build a lot of them with an overlap of the mechanics and the role play. And so that vampire rogue has these special abilities. They can fly, they can climb walls, they can turn into mist, but they're paying for it out of their own hit points. Or they can steal hit points or steal temporary hit points through sneak attacks. And so they're always in kind of a tension of having to go and feed off of foes if they want to use their powers. That's pretty hot right there. That's pretty great. I just got to say, I love that element of it, and I am desperate to play a Dom Fear Nightblade. That is the thing. And (laughs) I didn't have any questions about it because it was exceptionally well-written, but uh, the techniques, the magic items that you have with that particular subclass in specific, the Blood Coat is brilliant. I want to find one-shots that will let me play some of these things just so I could play those, because I think that would be epic. Josh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm taking no, a whole hey, lot no, of reactions No tonight. worries. Yeah. Hey, that's that's the way it goes, right? So Fired I up. love <laughs> I love the way that you put it, that uh, like you, these all come up in your mad scientist laboratory where you're dreaming up these concepts and everything like that. That's, that is terminology that the three of us have used. It's that methodology of, you know what, we're just going to be throwing our inspiration together and see what kind of comes out the other side, and I love that. There's always How some did, madness so, to the method, but sometimes it's a little bit too much. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's, there's, there's We're all always mad down here. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to get in. So you said that you came from from Pathfinder One E. How did you get into content creation in general? What was the path that kind of led you there? From the second I started messing around with tabletop role playing games, I'm always the person who says, "Oh, but what if it could do this?" I remember I had a third edition player's handbook, and I was like, "Oh man, this is so cool." But then there was this section that was like how to make your own class. And it had this whole like point system where you could buy features. And I was like, that's the thing I'm most interested in. Yeah. And so ever since then, it's been like, how can I keep pushing out the edges of what's going on? And Pathfinder was great for that because Pathfinder very much encouraged everyone to crack it open, get under the hood. And it was a land of infinite options. There was almost always a mechanical way to play any concept you wanted really specifically. And so translating into 5e, it was like, oh, I like the simplicity, but maybe I want to do something a little more weird than what's on the page. And reskinning gets you a long way, but sometimes it's just not quite enough. Yeah, if you're not realizing like the mechanical benefits of what it is that you want to do, then you're half playing your character. Colby, I have like more questions than I'm probably going to be able to get to in the course of this interview. So expect me to hit you up on Twitter often and frequently. I want to kind of pull off of what Josh had talked about with inspiring you to go into the lab and come up, coming up with these ideas. I want to lean into like your inspiration specifically and ask, what are your primary influences in the gaming and tabletop RPG world 
that you use to build off of and from and spin around to come up with these brilliant subclasses and the brilliant work you're doing. But in addition to that, what are some of your non-TTRPG influences? I guess I'm trying to say, give me like your number one TTRPG influence inspiration, and then give me your number one non-TTRPG influence and inspiration if you could. Oof, brutal. I hit you with the hard ones. All, that, oh, that's man. what I did. No <laughs> soft pitches here. <laughs> yeah, I think I already threw it out a little bit, but Pathfinder was huge. I had never really found that group of friends who wanted to play third edition. 4E just didn't scratch that itch the same way. And then Pathfinder was like a revelation. It was like, it has all these systems. It has all these ways of making really unique and specific characters. And I was like, yes, that's what I want to drill down on. And so I I hope that some of that carries through and the diversity of options. And man, outside of, I live in a swirling maelstrom of pop culture. Uh, That's a great phrase. (laughs) I think I got to go with probably something in like Neil Gaiman territory. If I had to just pick, if I only get one. For now, I'll hit you up tomorrow and the next day for others. That uh, sort of an idea of the power of symbols, the power of poetry and imagery to warp and shape the world is so important to me. Like a lot of times when I'm putting together something, some piece of original content, it's about bringing out a vibe and an aesthetic, saying something about the world through this monster or subclass or, (laughs) or magic item. Yeah, I could, I had a 50 item list of inspirations for, <laughs> for a campaign that I ran and I sent it to all the players and I'm sure all of them were like, I'm not reading or watching any of this. Man, we have to do homework. <laughs> it, it really, I love that answer. And I am one of those players who loves getting inspiration because even if I don't read the whole thing, knowing a genre or knowing the general feel lets me say, mm-hmm. okay, so how do I build to fit within the scope? So I'm ad- being additive as opposed to detractive and still get yeah. to have my own personal flair and spin on things. So I'm yeah. right there with you. It sounds like you're a big fan of American gods, which Definitely deals with symbology. I don't watch the oh, series, yeah. by the way, but I'm very familiar with the novel. I'm very mm-hmm. familiar with Gaiman from his Sandman and Vertigo work and his his footprint on DC Comics, even outside of Vertigo and what appears mm-hmm. basically in Justice League Dark Today are the things that he started. I am down 100% with that as an inspiration. If Gaiman's your guy... I'm feeling it. So thank you for that. It was really good. Yeah. yeah. And that reminds me a lot of when we talked with the folks from Against the Dark Master about how at the beginning of their book, they had, here's a list of 20 albums that you should listen to if you're going to play this game. Here's a list of 10 movies you should watch. Here's 20 novels that you should read, that kind of thing to kind of establish where they're pulling their information from. So yeah, it's cool. All right, gentlemen. Round two. It's a 14 for me. I am still rocking a three. Rock on. Different die, too. <laughs> okay. Glenn goes first again. Man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier, you missed, You mentioned your current grouping of subclasses that are coming out that I have to assume are at least Ravenloft-inspired or Domains of Dread-inspired, the horror genre. One of the ones that I dug into was the Grave Bond Ranger. 
And I got a couple of questions about the Grave Bond Ranger that I'm going to throw at you because I really liked the concept, but there were a couple of things that I just wasn't certain exactly how they would work. So the idea is it's a ranger whose pet has died, but in some spiritual form, it's continuing to stay with them, which is a super cool concept, especially for a Domain of Dread style campaign or anything with a horror bent where you're bringing that right in there. And I like the bit in there where it says that while you have your spectral pet out, you have a semi-undead rating as well in terms of spells and things like that. I like to think of that as a little Pirates of the Caribbean-ish with some appearance change too. But on the pet itself, because this is something as we've been going back and forth working on ranger pets, a couple of questions for you. Because you had a stat block for when it's manifested from the level 11 ability for the manifested companion. What does it use prior to that? Is it using its original stat block from life with the same abilities? Does it have any of those abilities changed or altered? And then my last question on that, because this is what kind of what it centered around, because I really thought it was cool that you can... Because it gets hungry and it f- feeds on life force. So it's kind of a multi-part question. I'm sorry, you're going to have a lot to dig into and I'm done. And in the end, you can actually bring it back to life, which is crazy great. But when it does it keep that manifested stat block or does it go back to being a panther or a cougar? Yeah, absolutely. The influences here are a little bit of a tangled mess. Obviously, there's a little bit of pet cemetery happening. There is the... There's this great comic series, Die, which any tabletop fan should read. It's the most amazing deconstruction. But there's a character in it who, it's a very cyberpunk vibe, but Die is all about wish fulfillment. And when they came into this game world, they had just lost a pet. And so they gained the ability to summon their pet as this cybernetic version. But Die is also this very cruel world. And so the pet would go away at the end of every day. And they had to keep finding this rare resource to keep fueling this pet. So actually at level three, it is not a creature because the whole class is built around getting your pet back for real. And what are you willing to do to get there? So there is this sort of, it's intentionally a narratively, tangled up class if folks have issues with like pet death this is either going to be perfect or maybe something you should steer away from but when you first get it there there is no stat block because what you have is literally the ghost of your pet you are essentially being voluntarily haunted and you are sacrificing the life force of either yourself or others to feed your pet back into existence So up until the manifest, there is no stat block. And at 15, you've got the option to fully bring it back, at which point you quit being a grave bond and you become a Beastmaster or Drake Warden again. If you want to keep it, it transcends becoming either a fiendish monster or a sort of Studio Ghibli-esque nature guardian. That's such a cool concept. So basically, (laughs) I I can be John Wick and I can get my dog back. That I'm in. I'm just in. I'm going to be well, one of these with light, with hand crossbows and some kind of kung fu. <laughs> and that's the question is, that's that the hook. Really cool. Sorry, continue. Oh, yeah. That's the hook I wanted to build into Horrific Heroes is 
things that are going to drive your character. Like everyone has a dark, tortured character, blah, 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 edgelordy, whatever. But a lot of times it doesn't affect their abilities. It doesn't actually, all of it has to come from the player making the decision over and over. And some folks do that really well. Some folks like they come in with the edgelord story and by session three, they're like a goofy cartoon again. These are going to hook into you and you're going to have to think every day about what your character is willing to do. Because even if you let it lapse, you can either resummon it at dusk or after you kill a creature. So if you miss dusk and you want your pet back, you're either going to wait 24 hours or you better go find something to kill. That is such a cool concept. Yeah, it's really <laughs> so great. I have it, a list of that needs to play this class. I was going to say, it almost reminds me of the old third edition style prestige classes, which were like the 10 level dips that you could go ahead and take that were highly focused and highly thematic. Thematic. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. But there was only 10 levels. And so once you were done, you came back to where you were. So it's like that kind of a dip. I love that. That's fantastic. So, cool. Uh, Absolutely. So I'm going to I'm gonna go a little bit here on something that we were talking about ahead of time. What our listeners may not realize is that Colby is part of a pretty exclusive club, not just among people who have come on Tabletop Journeys to go ahead and give amazing interviews, but also people who have come on Tabletop Journeys to give amazing interviews, whose name is in a book on my shelf. So you collaborated with, uh, with Jeff Ashworth on Traps, Puzzles, and Dungeons not long ago. And so I wanted to talk about that a little bit. You were saying earlier, that's that was like your first foray into content creation? Tell so me about that. I feel like a little bit of a jerk. Uh, I <laughs> fell backwards into publishing. <laughs> All of the homebrew stuff, like I made it on a dock on the computer. I'd shoot it off as a PDF to a player and it never escaped my orbit. And then after we moved, I was looking for a local game. And I don't know, in retrospect, maybe it wasn't the smartest idea. I put out like Reddit posts, hey, looking for players in my area, got some folks back, started a game and had no idea that this guy I was playing with, who was super nice, great role player, started off as a pal- <laughs> as a cleric of Paladin and ended up being a cleric of Paladin after about two episodes. <laughs> uh, familiar was a stick of butter that flew around. Sold. That's awesome. Sold. Yeah. Sold for the price of a D20. That is amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, he was a blast to play to play with. But after we've been going a while, he revealed his secret identity and said, Hey, I've got this book coming up. And I even I already owned copies. And it just didn't occur to me that Jeff, who was at my house playing this game, was Jeff whose name was on my books. Was that Jeff? Yeah. But, oh, wow. <laughs> he was like, I like what you've been doing with the game. Would you want to write me some puzzles for this book? And I did that thing where you try to play it cool and you're definitely not playing it cool. <laughs> Over a family vacation at the beach, my family went off and, and frolicked and I spent a couple hours every day churning out puzzles. And now it lives in actual printed pages. And yeah. it, it definitely blows my mind. I Only recently did I stop keeping a physical copy on my desk to just touch and remind myself like, oh, this is here. This is yeah, my this name in this book. Yeah, This is real. Yeah. That's really that is cool. so stinking amazing. And, and I'm not actually, people in the audience can't see that, but literally the book is right there back in, in my in my bookcase here. So it's within reach. And I have read through the puzzles and everything in that. And it's fantastic stuff. It really is good. And I, so I love that you gently played in a game with Jeff Ashworth and that's how you, that's how you got into got into content creation. That's just, <laughs> it'd be like accidentally playing with James Intercasso. Oh, Jim, the guy story. I play with. You know, yeah, yeah. 
That's fantastic. For the gentleman who fell backwards into publishing, I wanted to talk about the artwork because as I'm looking at this, you have got some fantastic artwork. You credit your artists here very well, which is appreciated and a wonderful thing for the community to continue to see. But I specifically on the Oath of Sacrifice, that artwork just jumped out of the page, grabbed me by the shoulders, shook me and said, I'm here. This is what you're reading now. I was just moved by that. And a couple things that, that, that popped and really where my question lies is, it is very clear looking through the documents you sent us and looking at just your covers, let alone artwork that's within each of these documents, that you've taken some effort to make sure that inclusion was part of your games and your process. Can you talk to us about that and let us know what came first, the decision to be inclusive, or was it the art that just came in and you're like, yes, I like that. Let's expand on that. Because for the folks listening to the audience, I'm not talking about just showing a picture to say you could be anything. The physical descriptions of the NPCs that are in this book describe the characters that are in the artwork. That's not done often, something that creators need to take some note of, that when you design your stat blocks, especially the named stat blocks, that you are describing a person, you describe their hair color, their skin tone, all of these things. And I absolutely love the fact that you went through that detail to say, anybody can be anything. You'd be, you can look this way and be this, you can look any other way, but being inclusive matters to me. And I just want to to hear you talk about that and where that came from and how it, how you got it and made it such a, uh, what it, to me seems like a focus. Yeah, I'll definitely start with, I am always in the process of learning and trying to do better. I really got to give some credit to my Monday night DM. Previous, we alternate back and forth. John Bryant, who also puts out some amazing subclasses. But it was a great experience getting to be a player with him and with that group because... He was, I could tell that he was making an effort to have a broader spectrum of characters of different backgrounds, different races, both different descriptions, just all over the place. And that really pushed me, okay, how can I do better on this? And as I was digging through and trying to find art, oh man, some of these, I probably spent as much time on the art as I did actually like writing it. There, there's some great resources out there for the indie tier publishers. Drive Through RPG has a lot of great stock art. There's a lot of collections like Creative Commons art to dig into. But where possible, I really tried to get out of either, okay, here's another generic white male human character, and or here is a faceless cipher you can impose something on. I want to have heroes who heroes and villains who all look and act differently and come from different places. It's this massive sprawling fantasy worlds. Why wouldn't you have this? Why would you have the, why would we have Star Trek worlds where there's only one culture and one kind of person and they populate the whole world. I want to make folks feel like no matter where you're coming from and the kind of character you're playing, you're in it. You're there somewhere. That's a fantastic answer because that's exactly what, you know, everyone and all of us should be going for with diversity is to make it so that 
all of the things and the types of people that we see in the world around us exist in our games so that everybody can feel like they're part of them. That's fantastic. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hey there, travelers. Do you want early access to all of our episodes? How about exclusive content, live broadcasts, and the chance to throw dice with your favorite hosts and fellow fans? You can do all that by signing up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys. But wait, there's more. For the next month, you can get a free coffee mug for signing up at the Adventurer level, plus Adventurer level Patreons automatically get complimentary copies of our latest book, The Traveler's Guide to the Multiverse, available on DMs Guild. We love doing this show for y'all, and your support helps us keep creating and producing great content for you. We have tiers to fit any budget for a monthly commitment, so join us today at www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys. I guess we're up to round three already. All right. Yeah. Let's, let's see if we can get in here. See if we see if one of us can knock Glenn off the uh, off the top of the mountain here. This might be it. This might uh, be I got it. Nineteen. Well, I didn't knock you off the mountain. <laughs> I got a sixteen. Sorry, I had to unmute myself. And he says nine. Nine. Okay. Excellent. I will go first. Luna, you get second spot this time. Okay. So. I wanted to talk a little bit about Monkfest and how uh, where a good half of the subclasses that you've written over the last year are monks. And we recently did our monk class discussion and class warfare episodes. And while we came away from those episodes, I think, with a better appreciation for what the monk in 5th edition is, I think we all realized that the subclasses in particular in the monk class are flavor variations. There, A monk is going to be a monk is going to be a monk is going to be a monk. And there are some kind of mechanical, statistical things that are different throughout the subclasses. But for the most part, the subclasses are a flavor change. They're not really a mechanical change. And so I want to hear you talk a little bit about, A, what designing eight or so very distinct, very likely unique monks. Like I'm looking, for example, when I was looking at the Master of Many Styles, right? And how you basically built in that like battle master style mechanic where like you got many styles to go ahead and pull from and how that worked. What was that process like to go ahead and really look at a class in D&D 5e, which is very homogenous from start to finish and really pull some really distinct flavor out of it? Yeah, I'm definitely on board with you on a lot of the monk analysis I love the monk concept. I love the martial arts. I love the, my body is a weapon. At a group in grad school, it was the Ridiculous Kung Fu Movie Club. And we kept, we said ridiculous because sometimes they were ridiculously good and sometimes they were ridiculously bad. And we enjoyed them both the same. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I always was dissatisfied with monks. It's, this is such a cool concept. And then a lot of the subclasses just didn't seem to hit very well mechanics that just didn't mesh and it's, and i agreed with you all flurry of blows and stunning strike just destroys key economy for every yeah. class yeah. <laughs> like and you do has got to be better than x number of stuns or x number of extra attacks yeah but i wanted monks who were mechanically interesting who didn't just feel like they were the same character with a costume swap so Master of Many Styles leans into, there's very intentional sort of Bruce Lee homage there, style of no style. And actually that's, he's actually snuck in there in a couple of places with names of items and some things. 
But yeah, I wanted to see this class that I really loved play like I imagined it should and have a breadth of options. Master of Many Styles is the, uh, that's the tactical gamers class. You can swap styles as a reaction. So you're always, it's what's the best style for the moment. But if I jump on something too soon, I'm going to be off, off where I need to be for the next thing. Hmm. Intelligence-based monk was something I really wanted with the dumbest of inspirations. If y'all remember the older show, Chuck. Yeah. Oh yeah, I loved him. Yep. I was like, I love this. The idea of Chuck or the, like the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes, uh, yes. someone who that acute analysis makes their martial arts work. Lee Wanika brings up that Sherlock Holmes very uh, often. That is that that is probably that, that opening fight scene in the pit where he's fighting the big guy that they start in media res and then come back to later on is probably one of the best depictions of an intelligence fighter I've ever seen on film. And it is so cool. And I've been waiting for a character who can play like that. And generally, the only way to do that is uh, with 5e, at least, is to make intelligence your second your secondary stat boost it as high as you can with rolls or point by or whatever and then flavor it as to how you're doing it but there's no mechanical support for that being the method and that's always left me very dissatisfied which is why i haven't actually done mm-hmm. it and i actually spoke to the fact i haven't played very many monks because i haven't been able to find that specific niche the closest i get to it tends to be from official materials the uh, can say because I basically play it like mm-hmm. something else that has the ability to punch also. But again, it's still a, without a difference. I love what you're saying about this. That's exactly how I feel about monks, and, and I love that scene. But oh, truly one of the one of the best fight scenes. Just uh, absolutely. If you've not watched it, just go hit up YouTube or something and just find that clip. Yeah. What's funny is the. I say all of this, it was a really intentional thing, but really it started because I was in a Twitter thread and we were talking about being dissatisfied with monks. And I, we started talking about the old Zen archery feats and classes and things. And I was like, I bet I could make this work for 5e and into the mad science lab. Like an hour later, come back out with the first draft of way of the Zen archer. So chronologically, that was the first one. And that really just sparked something of now I'm going to make my life about monks for the next five months. <laughs> yeah, I love the Zen Archer. That was a lot of fun to read. Really look forward to it. I have actually am working on a monk that for many of the same reasons, I read something and I was like, I read a novel recently, Dragons of Deceit. And I love the, I think one of the better depictions of the aesthetic monks and dragonlance. And I'm like, I need, I've got ideas for this. And so I wanted to put that down. And so I'm very much into the monk building and kind of seeing how other people are doing monks outside of Watsi is really good idea fuel for, not because I'm going to be doing those things, but because it lets me kind of not see guardrails, but see paths that have been taken. So I know, okay, so here's a path that hasn't been taken. And I can feel comfortable with, Let's change this up. Let's not make it be wisdom decks. Let's make it be something else. Because I didn't know if that was something that was viable or could play viably. But now seeing it here and these various things tells me, 
yeah, that's an option. I don't have to hold that tightly to what Wapsi does. It's okay to step outside of this to build something that's cool if it matches what you're doing. And you can build something like that. And I'm really looking forward to kind of going back to what is kind of like a one quarter draft and really kind of <laughs> up tuning that before I get my first draft out. And it's wild that 5e doesn't emphasize more that you can do stuff like that. That's one of the things that I enjoy is, okay, this is a very simplified toolkit. And again, coming out of Pathfinder, coming out of 3.5, you had 17 different kinds of bonuses. Multi-classing was the norm and you were going to stack this and this. Balance was just this wild thing that was impossible to, to grab with your hands. 5e has compressed the toolkit. You've only got five levers. <laughs> You've got advantage, disadvantage. You've got different size of damage dice. You've got different primary ability scores. It makes it a lot harder to break the game as long as you're paying attention to some of the design principles that they use across all the classes. If you cover bounded accuracy and you stay within bounded accuracy yep. and you don't break the die limits at variant levels you're generally going to be good and not build something that's truly broken the only thing you ever have to worry about is will your power overpower something if multi-class and you can't mm -hmm. even get that deeply into it you just gotta you just have to be vaguely aware of it and you're generally going to be okay <laughs> and of course monks give you a little bit of freedom there by not multi-classing great a lot of the time yeah not as much concern with that absolutely I believe it's you, Glenn. Is it my turn again? It is, sir. It is. That's fantastic. <clears throat> the monk, by the way, I loved writing a subclass for. I've only done one, but it was a whole lot of fun trying to come up with new ways to do it. My next question that I had written down for you, I'm going to take us to one of your other projects because I was reading through it and I did not get a chance to go all the way through it, but I liked what you were doing so much, I wanted to make sure we brought it up. And that was the publication you put out for Impactful Ideals. Now, I bring that one up because particularly when it comes to doing backgrounds, because that's really big for us, we make a point of fully filling out bonds, flaws for selections. And we try to make them as opposed to just being all generic. We try very hard to bring in a number that are flavored directly for the background or the type of life that kind of background would leave. But when you're looking at the bonds in particular can sometimes be difficult, especially since it's supposed to be your character's driving motivation. And what you've done is tried to create a set of options or things that you could at least work from that give you something that's more actionable and game mechanically measurable is not the right word, but to hold yourself account more accountable to your bond and creating a deep, in-depth character complete with questions to ask yourself about it and why it's important to your character. So tell us a little bit about why that was important to you and what you think it's brought to your games or other games that it's been playtested in for characters who have brought that system into their character creation process and how the players responded to it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all about having mechanical incentive for role play. This is part of the old murder hobo equation. Why do players just become killing machines? It's because the rewards are XP, loot, and items. How do you get them? By killing things. <laughs> 
So I wanted to find places that help people attach a lever to some of those role play elements. It's not just that there are either great role players or awful role players, and there's nowhere in between. Sometimes if you just give folks a nudge, it opens up this whole whole new experience. This system was built for a group of teenagers. I was running a game of D&D for a youth group. It was, I was running multiple games. Early COVID, everyone is just online and bored all the time. So we're putting this game together and a lot of new players, a lot of folks who had never really jumped in too far into a role-playing game. And I was like, what could I do to help nudge this along? And Theros had just come out pretty recently. I loved the piety system, thought it was so cool, super sad. It's kind of abandoned. And I was like, there's something here that can bridge that gap for them. And I love the effect. Like by naming the things that were important to them, it powered the role play in ridiculous ways. This was that Isekai campaign I've mentioned earlier. Uh, One of the characters, all they wanted was to go back home to this sort of found family back on this other world. And they were willing to wreck their life and wreck everyone else's life to make that happen. And normally in a party, some folks are just afraid to rock the boat, to create drama, but he had really put that at the forefront. This is what's most important. So he found this dimensional artifact. He knew that it had worked by being like stabbed into a creature. And so during downtime, he snuck off. Even as the DM, I was like, what are you doing? He snuck off and he poked himself with this artifact and activated it and caused complete chaos. It was beautiful. Set off all of these crazy reactions. NPCs died. There was a dragon attack. And it was this beautiful character moment, all because he had a tangible way to say, am I chasing my goals or not? In that same campaign, we had the sort of conniving mastermind rogue, never on the front lines, everyone's expendable, but he adopted a Boblin the Goblin. <laughs> and the their Boblin got grabbed by a Plesiosaur, a Loch Ness monster kind of creature, and the conniving out-for-himself rogue ran off the end of a pier and did the full, what was that movie called? Day of Fire? Rain of <laughs> uh, Fire. Yeah. With Matt McConaughey. Hey, yes. Yeah. It was like, yes. It was like, yes. This is the wrong tactical play, but it's the perfect character play. And that's what I want. Uh, I'll have to give a lot of inspiration to Critical Role. Because Critical Role, some of the players do a fantastic job of this. They have things that they want. And because they trust each other, because they are experienced players, sometimes they screw the whole party (laughs) to advance those personal goals. And the game becomes richer for it. I do have a note in here somewhere of some session zero conversations to have. So you don't kill each other five sessions in. Yeah. But you think of characters like Percy, you think of characters like, like Caleb and not in season two, they all had these driving goals and they were going to go after those goals. Even when the player is, Oh, this is dumb. I shouldn't do it. 
But then Percy's like, vengeance, crazy mask and demons. Yeah. That's the feeling I wanted to capture. So I love that list of influences. Again, Rain of Fire, one of my all-time favorite movies. It, that, is, that movie is singularly the reason why I started playing D20 Modern, because that game allowed you to adapt that film. It is also one of the reasons why I have gotten everyday, I back the Kickstarter Everyday Heroes, because I, I believe that's one of the movies that they're going to put out in their movie splatbook type thing that they're doing following the, the, the original stuff. All into that. But even in the games that we play, Glenn and I are in Streams of Sphero with Benito Sinese on Spectre Studios. And the character I play, he is driven. He was originally driven to find out about his past because he has this blank memory period of his time from he from the fact he actually died uh, prehistory to me playing the character in the game. And he was back. He's a warforged, so somebody put him back together is kind of the backstory. But it was that whole concept of I had to find out what happened and then find a family because I was part of an army that I'm no longer a part of. I deal with some PTSD issues from that. But I now have a family, this group, and everything I do is to try to keep this game together. And while other people have other goals, even within the group, <clears throat> things falling apart drives me harder to try to keep them together, even if it's not necessarily the most tactical thing. And I'm a tactical character. And I love that dynamic and that's the kind of thing that you're bringing out with this i didn't play the piety system i saw it i liked it but i didn't wrap my head around it but having read through your document i wrapped my head around it much better than i did the piety system I actually now that i know how the piety system works i could actually go back and use that as well as something like this perhaps some people are dealing with the ideals maybe some people are dealing with the piety system but i think that those are two very cool elements to bring to a game because you're right there are not enough good rewards to keep the game away from grabbing loot and killing people beaten peasants taking their change is really the only way when you play that way <laughs> we've we here at tabletop journeys have tamped that down by i believe most of us fairly exclusively or to a large extent just do milestone just to that mm. halves that thing right it just halves it but again yeah, it doesn't help to kill all the townsfolk for xp if it's it wasn't one of the milestones in the plan <laughs> but it, but the problem is taking away a reason isn't the same thing as giving a reason and that's mm -hmm. why i really like this and i think that's fantastic yeah i've actually never tracked xp which is like a weird I don't know. I imagine some players like heads just went. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get mail, Colby. Thanks. Send all mail. They get it. Send all meticulously. Exactly right. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I did it meticulously for my last Rifts game, and that's the last time I have ever done it. So I think we're going back, what, six, seven years now, Glenn? Uh, the fun out of it, though, to sit there and have to do the math on every little thing. It really does. It, I had a, a much better process. I had a spreadsheet with algorithms, automated things for when people were absent. They got half XP, and like I would fill in a column on one page of the spreadsheet, and it would populate. And then I tracked NPCs so they could gr graduate the same I learned Excel very well, but I, it was way too much overhead for running a game. I could never do that while I'm running as many games as I currently run. I'm just remembering the that Calvin and Hobbes meme where he's like, this isn't an adventure. This is just math. Exactly. <laughs> I loved Calvin and Hobbes. I had like almost every one of their. Yeah. Okay. So you're definitely our people. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Kobe, we're going to be talking a lot, a lot, a lot. And uh, yeah, I 
This is awesome. This is probably this is such a fun interview today, yeah. and I love all the things you're bringing to the conversation. Yeah. All right. We have got time for either Mr. Miller's last question or a lightning round for the three of us, but I'll also have to go ahead and come up with a quick question. I have so a I, lightning round question. I have one so, that I have written down that's fairly short and specific. Yeah. So do I. Mr. Miller, can, can you abdicate your final question? Since you got I, your reactions at the, at the beginning I, I of the show. I got all those reactions, and yeah. the, the last question that Glenn asked was yeah. my last question. So I'm going to go ahead and say I'm going to get take one for the team. Let's go lightning round. <laughs> lightning round. All right, Glenn, fire off. Oh, I get to go first, too? Absolutely. Okay. I'll, I'll, yeah. So my specific lightning round question, Don. And you might get to go for double jeopardy where the scores can really change. <laughs> but I really dug into the, I dug and while well, I dug it while digging into the blood domain cleric, um, mm. I'm not going to go into the class itself too much. So y'all are going to have to definitely pick up the horrific subclasses as they come out. But one thing in particular, because you go into a couple of extra spells, which I thought were groovy. And some magic items. And one of the magic items I really liked, but I had a question because it seemed unclear. The blood spike. Because th- I was like, I might, <laughs> I might be interested in bringing that into my game. The blood spike says that you have to have temporary hit points in order to use it or activate it. But then it states that once you use, when you have temporary hit points and cast a damaging spell, you can sacrifice a number of hit points. Now, regular hit points, your normal hit points are only temporary is where my question comes in. Up to your proficiency bonus to deal twice as many points in necrotic damage. So if I have one temporary hit point, can I sacrifice six anyway if I have six proficiency bonus and give away my permanent hit points too? Or does that only work for temporary hit points? I think it was intended to be temporary hit points. Because the whole vibe is you're keeping this pool of stolen vitality from your foes and you're burning it to power your abilities. And that that exists throughout the class, which I thought was really cool. This is the one where it seemed to cross the line from temporary to regular. And I was trying to figure yeah. out if that was deliberate. Yeah. Cool. That's just editorial, an editorial oversight. Okay, cool. Well, <laughs> thought I found it for you, but it, it, I thought it would be neat if you could, because it's not a lot. It's only up to your proficiency bone. Mm-hmm. You have one, but you can sacrifice some of your own life. I was still down. I was just curious. Oh, and I have one last question on it. Because, and this is 100% editorial, but since we're already there, I'm going to ask, is it a scarf or a dagger? That is also a typo that is fixed in my errata to roll out eventually. Mm. I tend to accumulate those, so I'm not like (laughs) pinging everyone's DMs guild over and over. Mm. Yeah, we're we're definitely reviewing documents in progress. We know we're not on final PDFs. I was just trying to determine Mm -hmm. what I was looking at. And now you know why our editing process is called glenning. So that's... (laughs) It's he's no he's no he's no the last one to go ahead and read it because he catches all the things like the in ours too. All right, here is my lightning round question, and I will I apologize up front because the question is much shorter than the answer is bound to be, and it's really it is the dagger through the heart question. And we have asked this of numerous interviews before, and I think that your answer is gonna be fantastic. Pick one IP in the world that you are the one IP that you love. The creators of that IP come to you and say, Colby, we want you to write the tabletop role-playing game port of our IP. What IP is it? Oh, man, brutal. Uh, my reflex is to say Jim Butcher's Dresden Files, but there's yes. already a wonderful tabletop version. Uh, they put out like six different versions of Star Trek. That's uh, I do have a, a Persona 5-inspired Blades in the Dark hack mm-hmm. that I am chopping away at. 
that I would really love to get some students by day, phantom thieves by night up and running. That's, That's fantastic. Great, that is a great answer for a really question. Yeah. We've had some awesome ones. My favorite still remains sliders. Yeah. It doesn't Ooh, have yeah. one right now, I don't think. Yeah. Still. Yeah. But yeah. I'm thinking I might try to build that with Everyday Heroes once that book gets in my hot little hands. Yep. Nice. But, but I think that would be a, a great one to do. Yeah. We could have some fun with that. All right, Mr. Miller, lightning round. What do you got? You took my lightning round question, so I'm going to go with a bizarre lightning round question. Colby, I love this conversation, and I don't think I've ever done this in one of our interviews before, at least not as direct as I'm about to. When is the next time we're going to see you? And when is the next time we can actually sit down and throw some dice together? Because everything you've talked about today puts you solidly in the camp of folks that we love to game with. We do our class warfare episodes where we have people come in for our encounters. You've probably hopefully had an opportunity to listen to a couple of those. We have every now and then we have big collab games where we put together and do something really cool or we'll work with a, a game designer who has a brand new game that they're doing and we put together a cast for those events. We want, I desperately, I'm, I'm speaking for my co-host here, but I desperately want to be able to throw dice with you at some point in the near future. And uh, can we make that happen? And if so, how many sodas do I have to provide? Do I have to send <laughs> fruit snacks, a muffin basket, or something? What do I? What do we need to do to make this happen? Hey, I'm down for it whenever. Yeah, I've I had see. a blast, and this is what I do when I'm not being recorded: is just like talk yeah. with talk about D and D stuff with people, yeah. even people who maybe don't even bring it up. I'm notorious for that. <laughs> so tell them, Josh. Tell, tell them your, your say, statement. This is why we started the podcast, because for 20 years, Nika and I have been talking about, about D and video and gaming on people's couches, whether they wanted us to talk about it on their couch or not. So that's really why we started the podcast at the end of the day. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah, he says that all the time. <laughs> yeah. Hey, and it sounds like if you've got a Blade in the Dark port that's coming up, we're looking to go ahead and fill up our EP, our actual play dance card next year. We'll have to go ahead and be in touch and have you come back and run a Blades in the Dark game for us. That's a game I have not played, and I would love to have yep. your game be the first one I play. Yep. Now you're I, running it, and we're playtesting it for you as the game. Yeah, hey, I, that's what all my players sign up for, whether they realize it or not. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. All right, Colby, this has been just a fantastic time. Let our audience know where they can find your stuff, where they can go ahead and get some of these awesome subclasses that we've been talking tonight and all the rest of it. All right. So I'm going to spell this word because we've already had some confusion. <laughs> Hagiologist, H-A-G-I-O-L-O-G-I-S-T. So that's hagiologist.com. On Twitter, that's DM underscore hagiologist. Folks can hop on there, and I'm always glad to have this kind of conversation. And you can also find me just as Colby Whitaker on DM's Guild or in that Game Master's book of Traps, Puzzles, and Dungeons. Fabulous. Fantastic. Uh, Colby, thanks so much for joining us tonight. A fantastic interview, fantastic show. Thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate you taking some time with us tonight. Yeah, thank you all for having me. Well, yeah, have a wonderful evening. And all right. thanks for Absolutely. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye. Good night, all. Peace. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. Join us at www.ttjourneys.com where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. You can also stay in touch by subscribing to our Twitter, at TT Journeys, by joining our Facebook group, Tabletop Journeys, or by sending an email directly to podcast at ttjourneys.com. And remember, if you want early access to all of our episodes, a chance to drop dice with your favorite hosts, 
and maybe even appear in one of our actual plays, you can join our Patreon to help support the show at patreon.com forward slash ttjourneys. You're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, or Audible. We would appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast on that platform. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays, and every Tuesday features our actual play episodes. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler along our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.